this episode is a very special episode. This is Jer Gettle, my hero. <laughs> he is the reason why I started gardening and saving seed. It was his example that truly inspired me and started me on the path of gardening and then led me to permaculture. So I, it was so exciting to be able to talk to Jer. Jer Gettle and I um, have known each other sort of for a few years now. I keep going to the Heirloom Expo. I keep buying their seeds every year. The Seed Bank, the Baker Creek Seed Company, rareseeds.com, Jer Gettle, they've been giving me seeds for years to help with the school gardens and help with my course now. I, I love what they do, and I really want to support everything that they do because... It's amazing. I mean, they're fighting for pure heirloom seed. And, I mean, there's nothing better in this world, nothing more critical to the base of our foundation, the base of our civilization, than pure food. And Jared Gettle and his family are working very hard on that. Jared and I talk about tons of stuff this episode. We talk about seeds, we talk about family, we talk about his history of his business. We go all over the place, so join us. Here we go. Let's dive right in. I've got the recorder going. Um, I started saving seed, and the seeds I saved were your seeds, and the way I saved them were from your your book, Heirloom Life Gardener. And I, you, you inspired me, and it, I, you know, I saw you on Oprah. My wife was into Oprah. My wife has had uh, cancer different times in her life, and. When she gets uh, stuck in a bed for many months, she she needs to like watch something to not go crazy. So she she was into Oprah and she watched this Oprah and it was like the, I think the second to last or maybe it was close to the end of Oprah's is uh, Oprah's run and you were on there and she my my wife pulled me over and had me watch it with her and I, it was I just watched you guys on there and it changed my life and I totally just was like that's what I want to do. I want to be that free. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, it's not always uh, that easy, but it's all—it's always fun, you know, getting out in the garden. There's something about it being in the, being able to grow, get out and grow and experiment, experiment and experience the whole thing. It's you know, it's so much fun. Absolutely, yeah. So talking about the whole experience, um, I I am a huge fan of the, your book, Heirloom Life Gardener. And um, that was part of my journey to, to doing permaculture. And I feel like it's still part of why I do permaculture. And I, your, your early life, it, a lot of it was very off-grid. And, and a lot of people um, are so distanced from that life. Um, it's so critical to have connections to those skills. And you, are, you, you took that connection and you are exporting it on this bigger level and sharing with so many people. Um, maybe you could share with us today a little bit about what it was like growing up and what components were off-grid, because uh, you were in Montana for a while, right? Correct, yeah, I grew up when I was, till I was about 13, we were in uh, kind of half the time uh, between Boise Valley when I was really small uh, and right on the Oregon, actually Oregon-Idaho border out in the country and then in Montana for the last, uh, Eight years, and then we first five years in down in Oregon, and then over in Montana, and then I've been in Missouri for over twenty years now. It's like twenty-two years. So, uh, 
it was basically growing up, my, my folks at the time, you know, lived on small farms. So we had to, uh, and you know, my dad didn't work out much, so we pretty much had to grow our a lot of our own food and, you know, can and preserve. And my dad at the time was, you know, uh, hunted and fished quite a bit, as well as, you know, we'd pick, you know, in the spring, we'd pick wild asparagus or whatever we could find around, you know, harvesting, gleaning, and also plant everything, you know, whether it's fruit trees or potatoes or, you know, sweet potatoes or pretty much, you know, we tried to grow as much food as possible every year. So I kind of grew up, you know, when I, the tiniest, uh, tiniest child, I remember the earliest memories was, you know, some of the first things I can remember is both planting seeds and also looking at seed catalogs and, you know, dreaming about, you know, working someday for a seed company, even, you know, really small, I always, you know, dreamed about it. So it was kind of, it just came naturally to me. Also, all my relatives around in the Boise Valley when I was really tiny, everybody seemed to have a garden at that time period, at least in my family, so. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, my five-year-old, he just told me he, uh, as he was working with these seeds, because I keep bringing him pods, and then I ask him which seeds will be good and which seeds won't be good. And so he separates out the seeds that he'll, he think will be he thinks will be good seeds, and you know, because we're we're late in the season over here in California, so I've got definitely like the Cherokee black beans. They don't they don't dry down right once it starts frosting, but the cowpeas can, and the um, the runner beans certainly can. And so so we go through this thing, and you know, and it's like skill building, but like he is just loving playing with beans and making different designs and stuff with them. And I I hope that, I mean, he just said he wanted his next birthday to be permaculture, you know? And I hope that All right. he comes, I hope that he comes uh, like of age and just feels like the need to participate in it too, like the way you did. Oh, it's so much fun, you know, it's so much fun connecting with it. And even if people can just do it, you know, on a small, small scale, uh, you know, getting themselves involved with, you know, their food is such an important thing. You know, on any scale, any way you do it is, uh, even if you don't have a garden, even if you just wild harvest or uh, whatever you can do, every little bit, you know, bringing in your own food and connecting with where your food comes from is so important and also so fun, especially with children, to take them out and harvest in your garden or in the woods or uh, whatever you can grow is always an amazing experience. And it's always so fun for, you know, kids to watch things, you know, actually a little seed turn into something. Yeah, the orange giant amaranth is something I feature in my online course. And I bought a seed pack for you and I still have a seed pack. I planted, I, I, I had three plants the first year and w two of them got eaten, but one of them survived. And I got a cup of seeds off of that one plant. And then the next year I got a gallon of seeds. And then this year I've got gallons of seeds and it's been three years. All right. And so it's it's just incredible what seed saving, especially when it's from like th your seeds, and that's why that's why I basically only use your seeds. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's so exciting that you just continuously add to it your 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 seed selection too. Before I get into that though, let's double back to the family. So I met was it your grandmother or your great grandmother at the heirloom expo? Yeah, my grandmother. That's amazing. So she was working like full time the whole time and she she's vegan too. So are you guys have you guys generationally been vegan? Uh, my grandmother and grandfather um, became vegetarian, actually, um, probably back when they were younger. My grandfather had been having some health issues. I can't remember if it was uh, a heart related. 
related issues, some kind of a health related a health related issues. And they, my grandmother had been on and off vegetarian too, so they kind of switched to being vegetarian. And then they've only been vegan probably for maybe ten years or so. But my grandfather's passed away in the last year. But they've been vegan for, but more or less vegan for the last ten or twelve years. But vegetarian most of their life. And then my mother and father were. Uh, my dad was not vegan. And my mother was raised vegetarian, so over the years, though, my dad switched and became, you know, uh, he became vegetarian when I was about 12 years old. Wow. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, but most of my mom and dad's family is not, there are some vegetarians in the families, but the majority, probably 90% are not. Wow. So, I mean, for me, for health reasons in our family as well, we've done cleanses where we were vegan for extended periods of time doing the Gerson therapy which is a cancer therapy which is diet sure yeah um and then we were vegetarian for an extended period of time uh, many years and we've just kind of only even eating meat since we've been raising it ourselves um, all right and when once we started eating you know we started eating other people's and <laughs> open the door but I, you know, I wonder though, because people want, people who are vegan and people who are vegetarian are looking for a clear example for how to live off grid. And I know that you and Emily are working on this and you're providing a model and a pathway, both with your cookbook and your regular example through Facebook. So um, what, can you like share what that journey has been like pulling more like uh, off the grid and year round off the, the greenhouse, you know? It's been a little by little. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard when you're traveling in some ways, but also it's fun to experiment. You know, we travel quite a bit, but it's also fun to experience local foods in different areas. But, you know, this year in particular, you know, um, we're trying to grow more and more of our food in the greenhouse because we just put in a new greenhouse. So uh, actually we were just out there yesterday and we harvested uh, guava. They kind of produce about one at a time, but uh, there's a bunch of rutabagas, turnips, beets, you know, all the normal fall things. Plus we're getting some interesting things like the dwarf tree tomatoes and uh, a little bit of citrus every day. And uh, papayas have done really well in the greenhouse. That's actually a really reliable we just have one little papaya, a dwarf papaya tree, but it will produce, you know, like 50 to 80 fruits probably a year. Wow. So uh, it's been very, very reliable, but it's amazing what you can grow in even a tiny little attached on greenhouse. Um, we're getting, uh, pretty much we're not buying any vegetables still this time of year, you know, and that's really good because in the past, you know, you can keep certain things, but then, you know, certain things you couldn't uh couldn't have it all for you know until spring again or so so but right now with the greenhouse we're still getting peppers and it looks like we may get them all winter i mean the plants still look healthy right now and we're only keeping it at uh at 40 at night and then you know it warms up in the day of course with the sunlight so uh, uh we have a wood furnace that uh, heats it at night but so far with this mild winter and people in mild winter areas like california or even people like zone seven even zone seven eight nine they you can almost Green garden with a greenhouse, even things like peppers, yeah, without even a. Um, have you tried pepper even trees? Even a source of heat, almost. Yeah, have you tried the pepper tree? Um, I have something that somebody gave me that was a pepper tree, and it's made a lot of little hot peppers. But I don't know if it's the same as you're talking or not. Yeah, I think that there's a whole bunch of them, and people just call them pepper trees. Um, but those seem to be do those seem to be really hardy once they're established and they're perennial, so that might be a good 
um, a good greenhouse option. Yeah, I'm thinking about getting some more perennial type peppers and different plants because uh, it'd be really good to have some big matured plants that could uh, be in there for a longer time period. Also, little tree, tree tomatoes, these dwarf tree tomatoes, they make little tiny, not real tiny, they're about the size of a cherry tomato, but they make clusters of about 30 fruit on a cluster. And they're still ripening. We only brought a few plants in from outside because of room, but uh, to me, they taste amazing. They have a really sweet, rich, fruity pineapple taste. And they actually produce outside in the regular climate here, unlike regular tree to the tree tomato, which is not actually, it's also called tamarillo, which is actually not a real tomato, but it's another type of fruit related to tomatoes, which on these little dwarf tree tomatoes, they're actually one of my favorites because they taste like pineapple-y, berry. Me and my little, the smallest daughter, the two-year-old, just love them. We eat all we can. My wife and my older daughter think, they don't care for the flavor, so it's, you know, interesting, but it's one of, the little daughter and me, it's one of our favorite fruits, so that's, you know, the thing is, with experimenting with this, you're, every year we find, you know, new fruits, new crops, not just new varieties, but totally new crops that, you know, you can put in a, both in a greenhouse and outdoors, and uh, some of this stuff, you know, will be perennial if it's, uh, you know, doesn't freeze. That is awesome. Yeah, I think I got golden berries from you, and they're perennials. And and they're established here. I've got them under a tree, and while well, I get them to, up to size, and then I'll move them out more so that they can go through the winter, getting a harder frost. <laughs> oh, that's incredible! Yeah, getting your own little food forest established is you know so much fun. It's getting stuff uh, you know stuff planted everywhere. That's our goal is you know just have little bits of fruit connected throughout the place here. So uh, you know, and also you know it also gives areas to the wildlife and. Uh, but it's so, it's so much fun to be able to have all your own fruit most of the year. So it's uh, you know, it's always a always a challenge. But it's the more diversity you have, you know, the more uh, less of a challenge it is because you're not depending on you know one crop. You have a huge variety of stuff to work with. Yeah. So speaking of that, are you going to continue to add perennials to the catalog? Because that's something that for permaculturists, it's like a core piece that. You, when you started off, you didn't have as many perennials. You're mostly um, mostly annuals, but now your catalog is just expanding by every year, leaps and bounds. Yeah, trying to trying to add more. Some of them don't survive the winter here, especially the more tender perennials. So as we can, especially with the greenhouse, that's going to help us as well to keep some of them overwintered, so we can get more perennial type things, especially things that will do well. Some of them will do both northern perennials. And some of the more perennial things are usually like, you know, trees, a lot of them are took, taken from cutting. So that's limited in some fashion. But then there's also quite a few things we can keep continuing to add. And then there's lots of, you know, kind of uh, temperate and subtropical perennials that don't uh, take the real cold winters but are ideal for bringing in over the winter or even uh, mulching. You know, a lot of these things can be mulched in colder climates, like even here, mulch well, and they'll come back the following year and produce fruit, you know, year after year. So it's a lot of experimenting, and uh, definitely we'd love to keep, you know, we plan on keep adding, you know, fun things and finding ways for crops like bananas, for example, to produce them right here, you know, by bringing them in and taking them back out. There's several people in the area that are doing that currently. That's huge because that's an entire new business that's us ending, like, shipping, ending, like, crating, you know, all these different steps that they have to take with those bananas, gassing those bananas when they arrive so they're green to make them yellow. All these different, you know, chemicals and all these, we just get rid of that and we have people who are local who can do it ethically. 
and safe. Yeah, California can produce bananas, but really, how many bananas is California producing? I mean, it's they're bringing them all in, you know. And uh, even in Hawaii, when we were there, you go to the you go to the farmers market, and there's local bananas. But you go to the grocery store, it's all imported from Ecuador or Costa Rica. Oh man. Yeah. So, you know, there's, what I perceive though is perceive is with a lot of uh, these dwarf varieties of bananas, for example, and other crops. There's no reason why people in a lot of the more somewhat moderate climates, like, you know, zones, even zone seven, eight, nine, with a little bit of care, should be able to be growing a lot of these crops um, that are just a little more work. You know, they're too much work maybe for a commercial grower to grow in zone seven or eight, but they're fine for a home grower or somebody that's wanting to produce on a small scale. And, and it's a fun, a fun project to, you know, increase more of your own food supply. Absolutely. Totally, absolutely. And you know, um, there's there's tons of projects like that in your catalog, uh, like uh, foods that people don't that people don't know about yet, but that are totally gourmet, like salsify. Do you guys do you guys eat that regularly? That's one um, we need to eat more. It it usually gets kind of hot here in the summer, and the plants do poorly, so we don't get as good a crop on that as we'd like. But it's one that we enjoy occasionally, but uh, that and both that and parsnips a lot of times suffer through the summer here, unfortunately. Huh. Well, that goes to show. Well, this I mean. last year was, you know, every year is different. This last year, too, a lot of the root crops suffered in general. Even our carrots were having a rough time of it. We had like a triple or more water, even four or five times the water in some of the weeks. All through, uh, clear up until the end of July. So we had, uh, you know, we basically flooded at least every other week, and sometimes for every week or even twice a week, all spring long. So it was, you know, a very unusual spring for us. Wow. So you didn't spend any money on irrigation, huh? No, we really didn't have to irrigate at all. Maybe just a little bit of water in, uh, like, the end of August. Wow. Well, that's good. But uh, it was very, 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 very wet. Which was both good and bad. I mean, some things survived uh, wonderfully and did beautifully, and other things kind of uh, literally washed away. Yeah, that can happen, absolutely. I mean, we our, our little creek became like a half a mile wide river a few times. So. That's amazing. Well, I mean, you can do a lot to help, and our garden is on a little slope, but there comes a point when the water gets high enough and there's n nothing to stopping it when you start getting, you know, when you start getting at floods like that. Yeah. So, so speaking of your farm, you've got um, a farm that, that, that is, that is lo pretty large. I hope I get to come out and see it. Um, but you're also getting seeds from all over the world. So let, let's talk about how your business developed for that. Because a lot of my listeners are people who want to start their own business. And that's kind of what's so inspiring about your story is because you just started off saving seed at home and started uh, started locally, right? Yeah, we all just basically started with me, uh, you know, collecting seeds. I'd been always gardening. I gardened, have gardened every year since as long as I could. Before I can remember, I was gardening, so I've never, you know, missed a garden any year. Uh, even when we moved, I always put in a garden. Sometimes I would, you know, miss most of the garden because we moved in the middle of summer or something a time or two, but always had gardens. So, um, but, you know, as uh, I grew older, I knew, I'd always knew I wanted to work for a seed company or somehow be involved. And when I got a little older, I decided to, you know, put out a price list, a uh, small catalog. And uh, it all started basically out of my bedroom when I was about 17. 
with about a hundred dollars worth of uh, uh, printing uh, printed catalogs, you know, that were just printed on a copy machine. That's awesome. So, so it's just that, you know, just basically, you know, a hobby, and it's still a hobby, but it's also, you know, it has to provide the bills now. So, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, it has to make sure we pay all the bills to keep all the lights on. But um, mostly, the, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, keeping all the employees and, the, you know, all the different things day to day, you know, uh, taken care of and all the different projects we're involved with. Cause it's a you know a lot of fun, but it's also uh, you know a lot of work to get it all done. Especially this time of year, we're facing the busy season that's kind of like breathing down our necks right now. Yeah, yeah. I was actually <laughs> I'm actually trying to gear up and finish um, my next book in time, writing wise, in time to do a Kickstarter for when the uh, seed catalogs go out. Uh, you know, in, in late late January. You put yours right. out really early, and I think that there's a reason for that. I know Grow Organic does the same thing with a lot of their uh, their trees and whatnot. Um, it's because your stuff sells out. Yeah, some of the stuff every year, you know, the, some of it's always there, but then there's always, especially new stuff or unusual stuff that you never have enough of. Yeah, I mean, I got the black peanuts uh, to plant for next year, but man, I miss those striped peanuts, and those were amazing. Yeah, we got several new peanuts this year, too, that we're trying to get online uh, in the next week or so. We got several new ones that we grew this year. It's always fun, you know, collecting and trialing things. That's, you know, the whole fun of it is trialing something new and uh, hearing the stories and learning where they came from and what who used them and where and when. It's always a part of the fun plus you know the, the flavor can vary so much okay yeah so to that end where uh where have you been been looking what areas in the world because i know that peru has been an area that joseph simcox and patrick simcox have been uh bringing back corn and i i'm i'm working on adapting that corn i actually have uh two um i can't pronounce it but the one that begins with k uh the purple, really dark, like galaxy-looking ones, upside down next to me. That's amazing, amazing corns in Peru. Yeah, unbelievable the the diversity. Right, and so I mean, and you guys probably are you just like touching the surface of what's really there? Oh, it's hard to know because I haven't been there personally. Actually, a couple of our people, a couple of the young ladies that work here at the store, they actually went down not in the high part of Peru where Joe was last time, but they went to the tropical area. Uh, in the kind of the north and uh, east in the in the Amazon jungle, to Quito's Peru, and they're finding all sorts of amazing more uh, you know things from the lowlands. So they're actually there at the moment. They're getting ready to fly home in about. They're going to be back hopefully like Tuesday. Amazing. But, um, they've been putting a few pictures over online, and it's you know more stuff to find. Every every country though has different regions. Like when we're traveling in Thailand, you go to different regions and different villages. Uh, normally there's, you know, not always, but normally there's variations and new varieties as you go to different regions in each country. So it's just like the U.S., you know, there's so many different uh, regional adapted varieties. That, uh, and, and some of these things, like we bring back from Thailand, for example, have the squashes, for example, produce uh, plants that are very disease resistant compared to a lot of the, you know, more northern developed plants that might come from New York or Canada or Boston or somewhere like that. It's varieties that do very well in hot, humid conditions or conditions where you have a lot of pests. 
and 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 some of them have proven good throughout the U.S. and others, you know, are more adapted to the South. So that's the other thing. You know, looking in different locations, you can find seeds that do well for different climate zones and different regions. So, are you wanting to go out and do your own botanical exploration? <laughs> I love to. I mean, with the family, we always go together, so we we try to go every year somewhere. Uh, this this last uh, January, February, and part of March, we were in uh, Thailand, in northern Thailand primarily, but traveling around, eating great fruit and food, and also just uh, collecting seeds everywhere. We could, you know, see a roadside market stop and... Uh, get a new variety of wax melon or jack bean or eggplant or whatever it might be. You know, whenever we're traveling, we're going from farmer's market and roadside stand and village to village and trying to uh, find different varieties. That's I, I love traveling, uh, especially in uh, my favorite place to travel is in Southeast Asia and uh, going to the mountains, the mountainous areas and uh, just amazing fruit and foods and plants, you know, not just domesticated plants, but all the wild plants, you know, it's so amazing. Absolutely. I, I love collecting seeds whenever we can. So, yeah, I, I, I wish we, we had fruit that was wild that was everywhere in America, and I, I believe we could do that. Yeah, a lot more of it could be planted, too. And even, like, here in the Ozarks where we're at, a lot of people don't use it anymore, but the old-timers, there's a lot of fruit that grows around here, whether it's mulberries and wild peaches and plums and blackberries. Um, to, to just name a few, I mean, they even have, like, the passion fruit and uh, other things that grow wild in this region that a lot of people, you know, used to harvest and make preserves out of, and uh, not to mention mushrooms and a lot of other things. There's a lot of crops in this region, in the south, you know, there's muscadine grapes and various other crops just south of here that, um, you know, people just need to get spreading the seed again and get them going because, uh, you know, a lot of these old crops were, some of them are wild and some of them were just semi-wild that grew around old homesteads. Yeah, absolutely. And people just don't recognize because they've lost that literacy, the plant literacy. So... Yeah, amazing, amazing, uh, amazing stuff, you know, Throughout the U.S., a lot of it's just kind of hidden and hard to find, but, you know, old apple orchards and stuff, a lot of times have great varieties still growing in them. Yeah, apparently there's a couple uh, orchards up in Yosemite that were planted that are, you know, they're right there at the, their age limit. I, I've never seen them. I've only heard about them, but someone really should go up there and take some, uh, some budwood off of that. That would be amazing. Yeah, there's so many interesting old historic fruits and plants like down in Arizona and New Mexico there's uh, plants that like old old ancient varieties of apricots for example that have been growing there since they were introduced there like 400 years ago growing along the creeks and uh, you know just a lot of these crops are very regional and some of them are endangered now because of you know whatever overgrazing or people clearing the land so uh, you know it is important to hang on to them when you can find them absolutely well, that is the spirit of rareseeds.com and your company, for sure. So, at what point? At what point did did your you did what point did you know that your business could you know support like a family? 
Um, were, were you like, oh, successful? I don't know. I mean, I kind of <clears throat> it was kind of a hobby for the first year or two, but you know, I, I was willing to live kind of cheap anyway. So I figured that you know we could I could make it work after the first. It was the first year was the scariest because uh, the first two years or three years were the scariest because I didn't really know. Um, the first year I started, it was real slow. The next, you know, mostly just a hobby. And then the following year, it was kind of like, it was right before Y2K. So a lot of people were thinking about gardening again, uh, back in, uh, 99. So, uh, a lot of people were thinking about gardening. So uh, the business picked up a little, and then I started wondering whether it was going to go down the following year, but the following year stayed about the same as 99. And then after that, it started gaining not enough to support a family, but probably by about, you know, 2002 or three, it was getting to this point where it could you know start becoming a viable job i guess you would say well it's just so awesome i mean you and emily are this powerful partnership um because you you you're writing and you're farming and you know you're building this family all at the same time and you're balancing everything and it's it's really inspiring and everyone can see it especially at the expo the heirloom expo um, are, are you guys thinking of, you know, doing more books or perhaps more expos around America? It's all interesting, but probably not. Actually, at this point, we're trying to, like, not start anything new simply because it gets overwhelming. Really, what I want to do is probably kind of hold on to what we can right now and, um, you know, focus more on different, uh, you know, books educational projects and uh, distributing our seeds more and more to, uh, you know, school gardening groups and, uh, you know, nonprofit type projects, as well as, you know, traveling and collecting seeds while we can in the, in our free time. The challenge is when we schedule events and stuff, which we love to do, the problem is the schedule stuff, it ends up that you can't, uh, can't get away to take any trips or as far as just like to collect or to do stuff with gardening. It's all, you know, getting ready for the next event and planning and programming and uh, getting everything done. And so a lot of times it gets us out of what I really want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really good But I mean, principle. there is a demand for more events throughout America. And, and events are being started. I mean, they're different than the Heirloom Expo, but there is quite a few different events on different topics and related, though, all related types of events that we're hearing about. Uh, you know, every few months now, people are, you know, trying to take their food back and reconsider how they're producing food. Um, it's exciting, you know. But, yeah, as far as more activities, we're trying to cut back, uh, you know, some simply because of, uh, I think we kind of overstarted, almost overdid it in a few areas, and uh, we want to focus more on our, you know, and that's what we've been doing the last year or so, focusing more on the gardening and uh, trialing different new varieties and uh Getting more time out of the office, that's always a good thing. Absolutely. So, I, as a permaculturist, I was wondering if we could bring a little bit more complexity. Because I know you're now, now, you're the, I mean, I don't know if any other catalog has done this, but no catalog has done it with your variety. Your catalog now provides pictures with every single uh, every single variety, so you can actually look up varieties, figure out what you have. Um, when you harvest it, you don't have to like tag things if if you're growing your seed and have the catalog. But I was wondering if we could, because I know some of your seeds aren't from uh, they're grown. Uh, you have seeds that are grown all throughout America, correct? Correct, a little bit beyond. Uh... Like we have, uh, for example, some of the people at the expo were from Guatemala. They grow Guatemalan varieties. 
that's one example. Um, there's several others as well. We get a little bit of seed from a few growers in France and, and so forth. And a guy in the Ukraine grows a little bit of a tomato seed collector there and so forth. So, yeah, probably about a majority from America, but it's beyond to, you know, probably about 10 different countries. That's amazing. So maybe it could be organized, uh, like like we could have uh, an indication of the zone it was grown in. Because I think that people would be able to, like, you could create demand for people wanting zone, the, like, the range for, like, I want, oh, I want mine grown in that zone. And then you could actually create this system where people could source according to their zone and then, and then the seeds, you, you, do you get me? Sure, it's definitely, you know, definitely something we'd love to work toward. It's a, kind of a challenging project, something because a lot of people, you know, think that something can't be grown and then somebody else is growing it. And so it's, it's all really hard for us to know what grows where, because for example, a tomato that grows here in Missouri in, you know, maybe 80 days or 70 days or even 60 days, um, when we plant it in California and the, where we're growing stuff for the expo out there, you know, in some cases it's taking, you know, especially depending on how coastal it is, it's taking twice as long. So that, it, it, that's the challenge. It's, uh, some of the zones have, uh, you know, coastal influence and et cetera. So it, it, but yeah, definitely it would be great for the majority of gardeners. It's just figuring out those kind of uh, tricky areas. So, yeah, so I've been thinking about this. And there, uh, there's this guy named Sepp Holter. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he talks about how his best seed come from these places with the porous soil, with the plants that do the best in that porous soil. So I was wondering, and I've been thinking about this, we could produce drought-tolerant versions of, like, staple crops or common crops on farms in, like, the Central Valley and we like water them minimally and we do all these different things and we train the seed to be drought, you know, we train drought tolerant seed like, like sorghum. Uh, I mean, people are going to take sorghum and they're going to water it when in fact you probably could water it very little. You know what I mean? That kind yeah, of thing. A lot of these crops could be watered a lot less and also developed so they need less water, hopefully in the future. It would be, and also there's lots of crops out there that like sorghum that are hardly growing that, you know, people in drought inflicted areas should be growing that, you know, aren't, they're not really that familiar with them yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that maybe, maybe having a drought tolerant series of seeds would be, I mean, I would love to spread that. Yeah, that would be incredible. And, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing that on my own property because I'm in an area that is drought stricken. Um, but and yeah, I am getting gallons of seed, and I'm gonna share at, on Seed Swap Day on the uh, the Spring Equinox in, in San Diego, and you, you you guys are sponsoring the event. It's gonna be awesome. And yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, just yeah, so many exciting things happening as far as events go all over. Um, it's uh, definitely all the seed libraries starting up and seed swaps. It's you know really exciting to see that people are getting interested in you know taking control of their own seeds more. Absolutely. And and it all started with people, um, well, it all started really in, in my world with, with your example. And, you know, that oh, came, came yeah, out it's just, of... It's just a continual, you know, passing the seeds from place to place and uh, increasing the awareness. I mean, it just, you know, it, you know, people send us the seeds and the seeds go on from here and become, you know, 
other things to other people, you know, and other, uh, you know, it's just a continual chain of passing it from family to family. It's exciting. And uh, the seed swaps are really cool because it keeps a lot of the local varieties alive and, and, and lets people know about them too. The local, you know, a lot of times you can find local things from right in your neighborhood that you would have never found. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, like for instance, the orange giant uh, amaranth in your catalog, it's five feet shorter than what I have growing, you know, my backyard is as the height, but it's because I've saved it for three years and because right. it's adapted that, that it just is exploded, you know, and I have a really long season here too. So it's all, and that's what's so exciting. And I mean, Going back to the whole idea of drought-tolerant seeds with your Explorer series, Joseph Simcox is going to the desert and he's finding varieties that are already bred and you guys are providing that germplasm unadulterated for people to breed and to adapt and, and, and you encourage people and then you provide ways for us to follow that path and adapt. I mean, how do I know how to seed save? Well, because of what you've written and, and the example you've shown and you know, the things that I've grown, well, they're coming out of your catalog. And it's and that seed that you plant is metaphorical, too. All the people that I know, you know, are affected more and more by these things that we're doing. And it's, we're sharing these seeds, but we're also sharing our heritage. And we're I feel like we're remembering who we were in some ways. Yeah, it's fun for me because, you know, I can be growing something out there. And I'll remember when I was real little, my... Mexican grandmother growing this crop or, you know, I'll see something and, uh, you know, remember gardening with my aunt or uncle when I was real small or my great uncle or whoever it might be. So it's always and in different crops from different parts of the family or different cultures or people that you met over the years or trips that you've taken, you know, 10 years ago. It, it brings back memories of different places and times and uh, connects you with different cultures as well as your own culture. Um, from from the seeds. I mean, you know, that's the amazing thing. They, the story of the seed is always uh, changing and always adapting, but it's also, and many times, you know, still has the ha history alive with it, and the stories are passed down. Amazing. Awesome. Well, what uh, what are you excited about right now um, that you're working on that uh, you're that you're trying to uh, scale up to share with everyone? Oh, there's just always new seeds. Uh, a variety, just a, a huge, the thing I'm probably the most excited about overall this year is, um, and actually the last year or so is different new seeds we've been getting from India and there's, we're, we're planning to take up some more trips to India collecting seeds and exchanging seeds, but there's such a host of varieties available from India and a lot of these varieties, India is such a big place, you know, there's drought tolerant varieties, there's varieties that grow in the tropics, there's such a, but overall, the rice that we planted from India had proven very resistant to disease. And in most cases, like the Desi, we have a little squash called Desi uh, squash, D-S-I, Desi. And anyway, it produces about 10 days quicker than any of our other summer squash. Wow. So, um, you know, that's really beneficial for people in short climates or also just people trying to grow their food over a, you know, a longer period. So, uh, We're you know, starting that, a business. the exciting thing for me is trying, you know, different crops from different regions and seeing how they do here um, but there's a whole host of different things we've been collecting from India and getting from India and we're just excited uh, you know I, I have people over there wanting to you know I have to take a trip over there and different uh, local people as well as 
people that I know from various places, like in Thailand, that know different people, and so many connections. And it's just like you're just waiting to take that trip. I'm anxious to uh, see it all, and you know that's that's what it, always I'm always excited to uh, both plant my own garden every spring, and also in the winter, hopefully, you know, go somewhere every winter if we can. You know, you, we don't go every single year, but it's always fun bringing in these new new varieties, trialing them out, seeing how they do in our garden, and uh, just all. But yeah, always something, always something to keep us busy. That's for sure with uh, collecting. Okay, so I have a challenge for you. Do you know Carol Depp? Um, I don't know, um, but I, I've, I've read. I've yeah, read of them. so I've read her books too. Do you know about the pop beans? What was that? Do, do, have you heard about the pop beans, the chickpeas that pop, that you, do in the, in, you, you pop them in the skillet? I so have heard of popping chickpeas, yes. I've never done it, but I've heard of them. So I popped, in, in, my, in my course I did, I popped sorghum seed, I popped, uh, you know, the traditional Native American corn, I popped amaranth, which is super fun, and I popped quinoa even. And Amaranth is amazing, yeah, we've done that one. Yeah, it's, it's just like the white part, it's not the middle part, it's amazing. So chickpeas, if, if you go over there, I, I'm all about the chickpeas. I want to adapt, because I know there's thousands of varieties. And they're green, and they're yellow, and they're white, and they're black. And so I, I want, and the, the cool thing about it is it's a protein. It's a protein that you can cook with a little bit of oil in a pan in a few seconds. So it's like, it's like instant protein that you can store dry for long periods of time. So for me, like homesteading and, and wanting to be as, you know, off-grid as possible and kind of off-meat as possible... That is a huge boon because, I mean, I want that sustainable, you know, that sustainable aspect. So if you could find any chickpeas, I would I would be very interested to help adapting those. <laughs> yeah, chickpeas would be something we'd definitely like to increase, you know, the different varieties of chickpeas. So I'm sure there's some amazing ones. Unfortunately for us here, we'll have to trial them more in other areas. They, I mean, we can get marginally here, but again, the damp, humid weather, they prefer dry, you know, climate. So... In most years, we're not the best location here, but uh, we are doing some trialing in India this year, too, and that's something we can definitely look for more. Uh, uh, we, we can definitely look for more uh, chickpeas. That's something we, we need to increase. It's something we've been meaning to increase. We just got to find a good climate to grow them, again, on a small scale, you know, because the big commercial farms grow huge amounts. But we need to find somebody that can grow, you know. And the other thing is with chickpeas, we need to find some kind of semi-mechanized way to harvest small amounts of them, you know, at least to clean them, to clean the seed from the from the husk. Because they have a, I mean, it can be done by hand, but it's, you know, we need to figure out a simple way to thresh them, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've uh, right next to me right now, I have three gallons of, Horizontal, so it's the uh, red Aztec spinach seed from Carol Dapp, and I am hard pressed to feel the need to clean it all thoroughly. <laughs> yeah, if I was gonna, it's eat always it. uh, yeah, it's always a, it's good if you're a small seed saver to be somewhat mechanically minded or technically minded, so you can. Uh, you know, figure out little systems. That, I mean, sometimes it's the simplest thing can really clean seed really well, but it's always a challenge figuring out the best little tweak you could do to your system to get it to work. 
Oh, that's interesting. So what did, what did you build stuff when you were younger that were was for seed cleaning? I'm not, so that's my challenge. But um, you know, I always am trying to figure out things. But I'm not very good. Uh, I, I may do with different things, but I'm not super technical. So I'm, um, I, I get by. But um, I never was. It's always better systems than what I can make. That's for sure. Yeah, I just, I just literally when I clean seeds, I use my fingers, and then I, I, I blow, and I have it in a big dish, and I do a circular motion. And I sometimes use fans, but I'm I'm pretty primitive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same with me. I mean, it's but little little. I, I go around to farms and little tiny systems that people come up with can really make you know. Sometimes the simplest little solutions. It's always fun to go to different farms because every farm you find solutions and ideas that people have to clean seed. Absolutely, that's awesome. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us all of that information. Well, really appreciate all you do and all you're doing to educate people about, you know, growing their own food and permaculture and uh, all, all there is to know about healthy food. It's so important to get people, you know, thinking about their food supply. Absolutely, and I, I, I just feel like I, we're, we're in this together and... I'm so glad that I can that I was able to leave my job and start participating and helping in this fight because I feel that you know pure heirloom food and I, I think of it as you know permaculture food, but that's what it really is. We're talking about heirloom food that is pure and that and it's just as simple as that. And I feel like we're in a fight to protect that and. And there are so many other families involved, and a lot of us are homeschooled, and it's really inspiring. And I feel like your example is one that everyone should know about, and I thank you. Well, sure, appreciate it. Appreciate, uh, appreciate all your kind words. I mean, it's, uh, we try, but we definitely have a long ways to go and a long ways to learn. It's, every time you're in the garden, it's always something, uh, something new. Every year it throws something new at you, but it's always... Uh, Always a good experience, no matter how it turns out. Absolutely. It's always something to be learned. All right, Derek. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate everything, and uh, happy gardening. Yeah, and you too. And keep me informed about the, the Spring Festival on your farm, because I would love to attend. would love to have you. Yeah, it's... Um... It's the first Sunday and Monday in May. Um, it's actually, I think, May 1 and 2 this year. Perfect. Well, we will be there. That sounds great. Yeah, give us a call uh, in a few weeks or months, and uh, we can go over the details with you. Awesome. That was an amazing talk. Thank you to Jer Gettle, and Thank you, everyone, for supporting RareSeeds.com and the Baker Creek Seed Company. They're an amazing company, and I think we all should continue to support them and to buy their products, especially as he expands and starts doing things uh, that are more perennial and that are more advanced as in communication of the genetics of that seed and in terms of where it's coming from. So this is... This is really an incredible time period. If we all continue to support Jared Gettle, he's going to continue to put out amazing products. Him and his wife are an amazing, powerful partnership. 
and they put out amazing products. And I urge you all to get the whole seed catalog because it has a picture for every seed variety. So there's no more having to label things really because there's vivid, gorgeous pictures now. So I encourage you to check it out. Go to their website, go look at the Explorer series, fall in love, rareseeds.com. I encourage everyone to check it out and have a wonderful week. Thank you. From Permaculture Tonight, have a great week.